We each come from different places and spaces, and life has defined our circumstances differently. But in these moments together, we gather and we pray as, as a united people. If we don't believe the same in every way, if our life is different, Somehow the person of Jesus invites us to know his love in such a way that it changes who we are and it changes the world around us. And so in these moments we gather together and we pray. Because these words that we have sung, no matter years may pass, it's time may exist, but somehow, Lord, we want to, to for our very soul, the essence of our being, who we are in relationship to you, to be in such a shape and place that it makes sense with the world around us. I want to live in such a way that others come to know you through that. So you pray with me this morning. Father, we come before you recognizing the way you love us. We come before you recognizing our own inadequacies. But we believe in a God who heals and restores and makes all things new. This day, whether we feel strong and young or whether we feel frail and old, that we want to live in such a way that on that day when our strength is failing, by our life and by our words, we will say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, in these moments, we pray for one another. We pray for the person beside us, in front of us, and behind us, even when we don't know their life situation or circumstance, because we know in this room right now, some are hurting and struggling. Some are excited and joyous. We pray today, especially for the McElroy family, the passing of Carolyn this last week. Pray for them as they grieve and as they move forward. Pray today for the young soccer team stuck in a cave being rescued. We pray that um, hope would reign in the midst of that. We pray that we wouldn't live lives with blinders on and only see the things in front of us that impact our own life, but we'd live in such a way that the blinders would be removed and we would see the whole world around us. We learn to love others as much as we love ourselves. Because we know that's the way you've invited us to live. You've called us to that way of life. And so often as your church, we fall short and we get it wrong. But we know the direction you call us to and help us to become more and more like you. Help us to be the people who love one another and love our community, love our neighbors. May we live and work and act in such a way that our community looks radically different. Because of the way we love. So, Father, we continually pray that you'll help us to be the kind of people who are quick to forgive, who are slow to become angry, who are quick to listen and slow to speak. So, Father, may our love be evident because of your love for us. And may you speak to us this morning. May it be your voice that we hear, not mine and not anyone else's, but may it be yours. And we pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, in just a few minutes, we'll continue our series in the book of James, and we'll be reading from James chapter 4, verses 13 on. Um, 
But it's interesting this week as we think about all that uh, takes place and we look at kind of what's happened. And it's, a, it's an interesting holiday and season. And so I was thinking about dreams. And because and I think when kids see fireworks, dreams kind of come to mind because they're big and they explode. Um, or maybe that's just boys. I don't know. Um, but I think for many of us, we have had plans in our life that haven't come to fruition. I mean, some of the some of us in the room have had plans that would change literally the world, or at least change your world, and they haven't happened, and we don't know always what to do with that. In fact, I think some here today are planners. You, you maybe you like me. Often on Sunday nights, I kind of write out my week. It never looks like that by Friday, but I plan it out to look like that. I mean, some of you have a plan for your day, like you know what's going to happen this hour and this hour. And if I were to to open your purse, or your wallet, or your phone, or whatever, you would. You would have written out kind of what's going to happen pretty close to what's going to happen. You plan. You're a planner. And some of us in this room prefer a different way of life. We jump from thing to thing. We prefer if there are no plans because we won't follow them anyway. Um, and so we're not sure how that's going to work out. But what I believe for most of us is at the end of the day, we all have some hopes for our life. I mean, there's some things that we hope for. Some in this room hope to retire someday. Some are glad that that hope came to reality at some point. Um, Some of us in this room have already raised a family. Some are raising a family. Some hope to raise a family. And some think, why would you ever want to raise a family? (laughs) Some today are, are working professionally in jobs and they have aspirations. Some today are thinking, you know, um... I just hope to work. We have hopes in life, things that we want, things that we hope for. Some of us work extra. It's called overtime. We do it either because we like to or our boss makes us. Some of us want to work under time, but they don't offer that, right? We, like there is, we just really, we have hopes for life and we want them to be seen in the ways that we live. In fact, most of us hope that life will get better over time. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes when we think we get to the place in life that life should be better, it isn't. In fact, I, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, a pretty alarming statistic that men who retire often die within two years of their retirement. I don't know what the numbers are. It's not good, by the way. But many of them do it because they, whatever hope they have, they no longer have. They don't live with purpose any longer. They had a purpose for all those years, and now they're not sure what the purpose is. Some people have purpose for vacation. Like, they think their life revolves around that. I, I learned that this week. We were up north for just a few days and on the drive back we my wife's family's place in Manistique Michigan and on the way home I've never seen so many RVs and campers and whatever else they are called I don't even know Uh, they were backed up almost halfway across the Mackinac Bridge trying to get into the UP I have never seen so many in one place I just saw dollar signs everywhere is what I saw but um, they were everywhere everybody was going on vacation we were going home. There was no one going home. Just, it was pretty smooth sailing going that way. In fact, I know some people tell me they work so they can go to the cottage or they can go on vacation or they can go to the campsite. They, that's their plan. See, we all have plans for life. I mean, I've had plans for life, right? I, I mean, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to play in the NBA. I've told you that story. I'm still waiting for a call from the general manager. They're signing everybody for all kinds of things. Why not me? Um, except I'm five foot ten or 11, somewhere in the middle. I'm not sure, and so I'm not that fast, and I can't jump that high. 
So that kind of takes me out. But we've all had plans, even if it's just for the day. We think we're going to go to the store, or we're going to go to this restaurant, or we're going to go do this, or we're going to try that. And so we all have an agenda for our life in some way, shape, or form. Every one of us do. Now, how much you invest in that, how much energy it gets, how much you care about that, that's probably different by person because we're not really sure what to do with that. But, but here's the reality for all of us. We all of us, each one of us, there's something that drives that decision-making. There's a motive for why we do what we do. Well, have motives. Motives are not in and of themselves bad things. We talked a little bit about motives last week, but this idea that each of us respond and react in a way in which our motives become what drives what we say or do. In fact, what I would even say is this. Often, we don't live out of what our motives actually are. We just react to stuff around us and our motives become secondary. Have you ever felt like that? You have hopes and plans and dreams, but you just react to everything in life. You react to the situations around you. You react to what your family does. You react to what your boss does. You react. Always reaching, reacting. And in some sense, that's kind of how life actually is. It's always changing, ever moving. And so we react to everything. In other ways, our reaction is often just an emotional response, not driven by our motives. But what happened if our reactions and our motives were synced up? What if we learned to live from a different perspective? What if we begin to see the world from a new angle and we begin to live with kind of a different perspective that drives our life? And what if in that our kind of life could be synced up to what, for, we, for what we truly hope for? And we've been looking at the book of James, and it really is full of just kind of practical living. I mean, James was the brother of Jesus. And, and as I've said, if, if, there was, if you're not sure about whether you believe in Jesus or not, if, if you've never decided to believe in Jesus, I, I can understand the stories are kind of crazy. A guy born of a virgin, died on a cross, came back to life, died for you and me. I mean, maybe you struggle with that. But, but here's the part where I kind of go, okay, I'm, I'm probably in, if nothing else for this. The guy's own brother began to pray to him. Like, if you have siblings, you know how crazy that is. But James has been trying to give us practical advice for how to live. In fact, what, what I would say is what we've been talking about, what we'll continue to talk about today, is practical advice for living that doesn't matter whether you ever believe in Jesus or not. In fact, it'll just improve your life. So some of the practical things we've been talking about, like learn to swallow your pride. When we swallow our pride, it helps us become more of who we can be, our best self. So to swallow our pride then requires us to embrace humility. I mean, embracing humility invites us to become the best we can be. We, we've talked about how even in the business world, people recognize the importance of humility. You can't hardly read a leadership book anymore today and not see them talk about humility as a marker of life that matters. And we've been talking a lot about how we speak. James talks about it in nearly every chapter. The gist of it is this, speak well of others. If you wouldn't want it said about you, don't say it about someone else. In other words, speak in only loving ways. And today we'll continue looking at the book of James and the way James invites us to kind of see the world differently. So I'll invite you to stand as we read from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. James chapter 4, verse 13 says this, 
Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. James begins with what kind of looks to us like an interesting section. He says, um, for some of you, you say, today or tomorrow I'm going to go here, I'm going to go make this money. Well, what we, we probably don't know because we, don't, we weren't Jewish and we didn't live a couple thousand years ago. And so what James is talking about is there's a cultural trend among Jewish people that, that when they would, would build new cities, in the ancient world, the Jews were, were some of the best traders, like economic financial traders. And so they had great pipelines and they were great in business. And so what would happen is when a new city would develop, the city planners would love for Jewish people to come settle in those cities because they would bring economic growth with them. And so what would often happen is Jewish business people would decide, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to move there. I'm going to get in on the ground floor of the business. And then a year or so from there, I'm going to make my fortune and then come back home. So it's a pretty common practice for to go and develop a trade route and, and get in on the bottom of business. I mean, it's like, think of it this way. It'd be, be saying if you were one of the early adopters and heading out to Silicon Valley in California and you got in on early on the internet, like you would have done really well for yourself. Same kind of idea. Jews recognized the value in this and so they would make their life plan. They would build it around how they could make a quick dollar or a lot of dollars. And what James is saying here is like you make all these plans for your business, but... But life's actually pretty short. Right? You can't guarantee tomorrow. Don't live as if you can guarantee what's going to happen. I mean, don't waste your life. James challenged us and he says this, will you, will you not just make big professional plans? Will you live in such a way that, that your decision making in life is really about about knowing my brother Jesus? And what if you really begin to ask the question, what is God's will in this? What does God desire for us in this? Instead of living out of other places. And see, here's what I want to say. Sometimes people hear this and they go, well, we just can't know what God desires. If it's God's will. Well, here's what God's will is, what we can say with certainty. The redemption and the restoration of all things. Heaven breaking into the earth here. Now, that's what the Lord's Prayer is all about. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, like that's God's will, that heaven breaks into the here and now and our everyday lives. And so what, what James is saying here is, no, we can't guarantee you professionally, we can't guarantee your next vacation, we can't guarantee these stuff, these things, but what if we lived as a people who began to recognize that God really does want to redeem and restore all that's broken in the world around us? I mean, it's why, it's why then this last verse becomes so important. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Right? Do you catch that? We're called to do good. This is action. This is activity. This cannot happen if we sit on our hands. 
but it requires us to ask a couple questions. What are the priorities of our life? And what drives the motives that we live by? See, all of us have priorities and preferences. But the question we have to ask is this, are the ones that we're acting from, are they the ones we really want to live out of? Years ago, I heard a phrase that I've tried to embrace in my life, and, and most often I think I get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong. But, but it was this. It was this idea that if we don't know how long we're going to live, we have no clue. And so, so the statement was this, live as if you will die today or as if you will live to be 100. Make the most of every opportunity. And Robin Williams was famous in a movie years ago. He, there's a phrase that he taught taught his students, carpe diem, seize the day. Seize the day. And live every day as if it could be your last, but live every day as if you could live to be a hundred. I mean, this, this idea, John Wesley is a theologian from years ago, and, and one of his phrases was this, because he didn't know what life would look like. He'd say, hey, make all the money you can, save all the money you can, and give all the money you can, because money is just a thing. What he basically said was this, hold really loosely to everything in life except for Jesus and hold tightly to that. So the question we're left with is, what are our plans rooted in? What, what, is it rooted in the redemption of what God desires? Are our plans rooted in the idea of bringing heaven to earth? Or are our plans about us? Are they rooted in fear about what could be or what may happen? Really, the question we're called to less is, how do I do good? Like, what does it mean to do good? Right? Like, I, I know that, like, vacation is good. Like, rest is really good. We need rest. If we don't rest, we, we burn out. But if we live for vacation, then vacation is no longer good. It's now an end, not a means to the right end. Hope you caught that. I know it's, like, Fourth of July week, so everyone's gone. I get that, but... They're not here to hear that vacation's not always a good thing, right? I mean, like, you can tell them later. But we sometimes ask the question, what's God's plan then? How do I live this out? What do I do in this? See, sometimes we sense God's leading and still reject it. We can sense God's leading and still not step forward. But the reverse is also true. We can do nothing because we have no certainty. And did you know that inaction is just as bad as the wrong activity. In fact, it might be worse. At least if you're trying something, you're doing something, but inactivity is worse than a wrong attempt. I mean, faith in general is filled with uncertainty and life is filled with change. But because of the uncertainty, often we allow a couple things to hinder us stepping forward. We allow fear what if? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if? What? We can go all day long in that. Or in action. We just don't do because we don't know the outcome. See, the call of the church is always to move forward. They're, the call of our lives is to move forward. We cannot go backwards. You, you realize we, all we can do is look back on our lives and learn from the past. We cannot go back on the past. It is humanly impossible to go back in time. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. No one can do it. But we can learn from the past of our life. We can learn from the motives that we live by. And we can take the right next steps going forward. Period. 
I mean, this is the reality for all of us. So often we live in the past. And it holds us hostage from the present and the future. But God so desperately desires for us to step forward into what he has for us. To step forward into bringing heaven to earth. But we're left with this question, who's directing our lives? Is it us? Is it our past? What if there's another way? What if we really begin to live out of what is good? What's loving? Right, so often we don't do loving and good things. And what James wants to know is like, that's by definition sinful if we don't do what we know we ought to do. It's hard for us, right? Inactivity is just as sinful as the wrong activity. And I have to be honest with you, I, I kind of I long and wish that the ones around us we would say, well, that the church would understand this. Our lack of activity is just as wrong as those who are doing the wrong thing? I mean, this is a call beyond certain lifestyles. This is a call to action, to a way of life, to doing good. To ignore this is the epitome of brokenness. See, I've got to be honest with you. I think this is why the church sometimes loses a generation from it. Because what the world doesn't need is more people believing the right thing if they're not doing the right thing. I can tell you right now, there's a reason why there's often a generation gap in churches. It's because they go, hey, my parents and my grandparents, they taught us all this stuff, but their life did not reflect the stuff they said they believed. So why would I be a part of that? It's true, whether we like it or not. It's a hard thing for us to embrace because that means sometimes looking in the mirror and going, maybe we've been wrong. So often we think that if you'll just believe the right thing, like, I, I, like come to church and believe the right thing and you've done good. No, you've come to church and you believe the right thing. But God invites us to not only believe the right thing, but to live the right way. And to live the right way means to say when we see opportunities to do good, when we see opportunities to do love, we live out of love. The hard part for us is that requires change and effort and it's more than just the right belief, it's the right way of living because without the right way of living, the right belief really is not that good. And it's more than the four walls of any church or if, like we have a lot more walls than four even in this room. But, but if we think the pinnacle of right living is going here or any place like here and avoiding stuff in the world, around us, that's sinful. And I hope you hear it as such. Somewhere along the way, as a church, and not just, I mean, the church, we forgot or we missed that love is an action, not a belief. Love calls us to more. I'll sometimes hear people say, well, I don't want to give to this or give to that because, you know, they're just going to waste it. I'm not pro-toxic charity either. There's a book about that you can read sometime. But I'll say this. How often do we assume the worst rather than assuming the best? And what would happen if we assume the best instead of assuming the worst? I tell you this. In the moments when I assume the best and not the worst, it's way more fun. When you assume the worst and not the best, 
When you assume the worst, you think the worst in people, you see the worst in people, you assume the wrong activity in people. But what if we began to assume the best? That's what love does. It's why we talked last week about be careful how you judge others because God literally says that he's going to hold you accountable for that. That judgment's reserved for him and him alone. Can you imagine what, um, what people might say about us if we just begin to do good? Can you imagine what people might say about his church if the people who call themselves the followers of Jesus begin to just do good? Can you imagine if we we embrace the embodiment of a certain way of life rather than just abstaining from certain ways of life? Can you imagine what the world might begin to think about that? So what is God calling us to do? What is God calling you to do? What is he calling us to lay aside? What areas of life do we need to to die to or step aside from? Or what areas of life do we need to step into and not avoid? I mean, I, I think sometimes we... Someone says, well, well, if serving is about like the joy we get out of it, that's like the wrong motive. But here's the thing. I think God has wired us in such a way that if we do good for others, it feels good. I don't think that's bad. I think it's how we're designed. Because when it's about us and it's just about, well, I want to get that euphoric high, I think God goes, well, you know, I'm going to honor your sacrifice, your service. But then over time, our heart gets changed and becomes a heart of love and we respond out of even the right intention. But sometimes we have to just start doing it, even when it doesn't even make sense in our head. Just do good. Even when it doesn't make sense, do good. Be loving. I mean, sometimes in our lives, we don't even leave room for small things. That's why I mentioned to the kids, how often do you walk by trash outside and you just leave it? Like, what if each of us just began to pick up stuff all around us? Super small, I know, Right? What if we did that? What would we say to our kids and our grandkids and the next generation? Hey, they care about this stuff. I mean, it's kind of biblical because God says you're to be stewards of all creation. But still, I mean, like this is the idea. He, he invites us to, what if we just did little things, do good in everything? I mean, love is the definition of doing good. In case you didn't know this, I, I mean, I, I love the four Gospels, but John may be my favorite. And here's why John may be my favorite. John is the most personal. It's really a story about his interaction with Jesus. And what John says over and over again is, hey, God is love, and do you know who God is? It's Jesus. God is Jesus. And you know who Jesus is? He's love. And if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, do you know what you're supposed to be defined by? Love. Doing good. And if we're not defined by that, then we're probably not following the right Jesus. Or not Jesus at all? Right? Can you imagine what would it look like if we took advantage of every opportunity? What would it look like if we began to live in such a way that we embraced, embraced the love of Jesus for the other person and not just our own personal agendas and our own personal motives and our own personal preferences? What if our personal agenda and personal motive and personal preference, what if it was wrapped up in doing good and loving because love is an action. It's not just a belief. So I, I came across a story a long time ago. In fact, I think we may even do this, this book this fall as a study. Um, I'll let you know soon. But I, I just want to read a few pages to you. I think I've read this before. Um, I've referenced um, Bob Goff before. But I, I, I think 
I want to share this story, and I think it'll hopefully be helpful to us. When I was in high school, I met a guy named Randy. Randy had three things I didn't have. A Triumph motorcycle, a beard, and a girlfriend. It just didn't seem fair. I wanted all three in ascending order. I asked around and found out Randy didn't even go to the high school. He just hung out there. First, I thought this was a really creepy guy. Um, I'd heard about guys like that and figured I should keep my distance, so I did. Later, I heard that Randy was a Christian and worked with an outfit called Young Life. I didn't know much about any of that stuff, but it helped explain the beard and made it okay that he was hanging out at high school, I guess. Randy never offered me a ride on his motorcycle, but he tried to engage me in discussions about Jesus. I kept him at arm's length, but that didn't seem to chill his interest in finding out who I was and what I was about. I figured maybe he didn't know anyone his age, so we eventually became friends. I was a lousy student and found out I could take a test to get a certificate that was the equivalent to a high school diploma. I couldn't figure out how to sign up for that test, which, on reflection, was a pretty good indicator that I should stay in high school. My plan was to move to Yosemite and spend my days climbing the massive granite cliffs. At 6 feet 4 inches and 220 pounds, I didn't really have a rock climber's build. I wonder what made me think there was a rock climber in me. When you're in high school, you don't give much thought to what you can't do. For most people, that gets learned later. For still fewer, gets unlearned for the rest of life. At the beginning of my junior year, I decided it was time to leave high school and make the move to Yosemite. I had a down vest, two red bandanas, a pair of rock climbing shoes, $75, and a VW Bug. What else did I need? I'd find work in the valley and spend my off time in the mountains more out of courtesy than anything. I swung by Randy's house first thing on a Sunday morning to say goodbye to let him know I was leaving. I knocked on the door, and after a long couple of minutes, Randy answered. He was groggy and bedheaded. I had obviously woken him. I gave him the rundown on what I was doing, all the while Randy stood patiently in the doorway trying his best to suppress a puzzled expression. You're leaving soon, he asked when I had finished. Yeah, right now, actually, I said as I straightened my back and barreled my chest to show I meant business. Look, Randy, it's time for me to get out of here. I just came by to thank you for hanging out with me and being a great friend. Randy kept his earnest and concerned face, but he didn't say a word. Oh, hey, uh, I inserted. Will you tell your girlfriend goodbye for me too? You know, when you see her next? Again, no words from Randy. He had this weird, faraway look on his face, like he was looking right through me. He snapped back into our conversation. Hey, Bob, would you wait here for a second while I check something out? No sweat, Randy. I had nothing but time now. What did I care? Randy disappeared for a few minutes into the house while I stood awkwardly on his porch with my hands in my pockets. When he came back to the door, he had a tattered backpack hanging over his shoulder by one frayed strap and a sleeping bag under his other arm. He was focused and direct. All he said was this, Bob, I'm with you. Something in his words rang right through me. He didn't lecture me about how I was blowing it and throwing opportunities away by leaving high school. He didn't tell me I was a fool and that my idea would fall off the racks on the way to the launch pad. He didn't tell me I would surely crater even if I did barely lift off. He was resolute, unequivocal, and had no agenda. He was with me. Despite the kind gesture, it was pretty odd to think he wanted to come along. Um, sure, I guess, I said half-heartedly. You sure? Yeah, Bob, I'm in. If you wouldn't mind, what if I caught a ride with you? Randy stood with a determined look. So let me get this straight. You want to drive to Yosemite with me right now? Yep, that's right. 
I can find my way back after we get there and you get settled in. I'm not sure why I accepted Randy's generous self-invitation. I guess it's because it caught me totally off guard. No one had ever expressed an interest in me like that before. Sure, I stammered as we both stood awkwardly on his stoop. I guess we should get going then. And with that, Randy closed the door to his little house. We walked side by side to my VW bug. He plopped into the passenger seat and threw his stuff on top of mine on the back seat. We got to Yosemite before nightfall and it occurred to me for the first time we had no place to stay. We had a couple of sleeping bags, no tent, and very little money. So we snuck in through the back of a platform tent set up at one of the pay-per-night campsites. We slept toward the back so we could make our escape if an upstanding tent renter showed up for the night. Fortunately, no one came. And the next morning we woke up to a chilly but glorious morning in Yosemite Valley. To the north of us, El Capitan soared 3,000 feet straight up like a huge granite soldier. Half dome dominated the landscape to the east. These were my companions. This was my cathedral. I was in the valley-wide living room of my new home. Now it was time to get a job and settle in. I rolled over in my sleeping bag thinking about how great it was to have Randy with me. I was a little nervous but also excited about my newfound freedom. I was a man now. I felt my chin for any sign of whiskers. Nothing yet, but I shaved anyway just in case. Randy and I dusted off the stiffness that comes with tent camping and went to the Camp Curry Company Cafeteria. I thought I could get a job flipping pancakes in the mornings, which would leave the rest of the day to climb. I finished the job application in front of the manager, handed it to him, and he gave it right back, sternly shaking his head no. He didn't even pretend to be interested, but I was secretly thankful he at least humored me enough to let me apply. No matter, undaunted. I went to one of the rock climbing outfitters with a storefront in the valley. I told them I'd do whatever they needed. I was sure that what I lacked in experience I could make up for by what I lacked in maturity or raw intelligence. They said that they didn't have any work for me either and that jobs were tight and almost impossible to get in the valley. I walked out of the store discouraged and looked at Randy who was leaning against the VW. Rather than feeding my discouragement or saying I told you so, Randy fed my soul with words of truth and perspective. Bob, You can do this thing if you want. You have the stuff it takes to pull it off. These guys don't know what they're missing. Let's try a few more places. And then, just like he had said the day before on his porch, Randy reiterated his statement. Either way, Bob, I'm with you. His words gave me tremendous comfort. I applied at nearly every business in the valley and struck out every time. There were simply no jobs available and no hope of one opening up soon. The evening approached as the sun sank low in the hills It was one of those sunsets displaying the kinds of vibrant colors that would have made a painter's canvas look overambitious. But I was still heartened. The sunset was real. I was in Yosemite. My friend was with me, and I still had a shot at my dream. Randy and I headed back to the campsite and snuck into the same tent we'd commandeered the night before. I didn't sleep well or long as I sorted through my very short list of options. There was no work. I had no money. I was a high school dropout. Randy snored, and I had to go to the bathroom. That about covered my list of problems from least to greatest. The next morning came with a Christmas that only fueled my anxiety. Randy stirred next to me in his sleeping bag, gave a couple phlegm-filled coughs, and said in a much too cheery voice, Let's go climb some rocks. We headed to the foot of one of the monolith cliffs and bouldered for a couple of hours, talking trash to each other about who was a better climber. By midday, we headed back to the valley to see if any businesses had miraculously decided to expand their operations overnight. It felt like the shop owners had quietly met somewhere when they learned that I was arriving in the valley and were conspiring against me to dash my dreams. 
The same rocks I had come to climb were now beginning to look like barricades. I applied at the remaining small storefronts I hadn't tried the day before. Do I have a need to waste my breath to tell you what happened? Randy and I sat on the front bumper of my VW Bug and leaned back against its flimsy, slightly rusted hood that bucked slightly under our weight. The sun was getting low in the valley again, and the granite cliffs I'd hoped to count as neighbors were casting long, dark shadows on the ground, each of the deepening shadows pointing toward the road exiting the valley. I only had a few bucks left after buying gas, and Randy offered to spring for dinner. Randy said again, what had become a comfort to me throughout the trip, man, whatever you decide, just know, either way, I'm with you, Bob. Randy had been with me, and I could tell that he was with me in spirit as much as his presence. He was committed to me and he believed in me. I wasn't a project. I was his friend. I wondered if maybe all Christians operated this way. I didn't think so because most of them I had met up until that time were kind of wimpy and seemed to have more opinions about what or who they were against than who they were for. Without much discussion, Randy and I exchanged a silent look and nod, which meant we were done, without a word spoken. I hopped in the driver's seat of the car. Randy hopped in the passenger seat we followed the path cast from the long shadow of the day before I was going back. We didn't talk much as we left Yosemite Valley, or for much of the way home for that matter. A dream of mine had just checked into hospice, and Randy was sensitive enough to know I needed some margin to think. We drove for five or six quiet hours. Every once in a while, Randy would check on me in his confident and upbeat voice. Hey, how are you doing, Bob? We pulled down some familiar streets and into Randy's driveway, there was another car in the drive next to Randy's that looked like his girlfriend's. She visited often. We walked up to the front door and he opened it. I walked in behind Randy, uninvited, but somehow I still felt welcome. On the floor, I noticed a stack of plates and some wrapping paper, a coffee maker, some glasses. On the couch, there was a microwave half in a box. I didn't understand at first. Had Randy just had a birthday? Was it his girlfriend's? A microwave seemed like a weird way to celebrate someone's arrival into the world. I knew Randy wasn't moving me because there, wasn't, there wouldn't be wrapping paper. Then from around the corner, the other half of this couple bounded out, threw arms around Randy. Welcome home, honey. Then the nickel dropped. I felt both sick and choked up in an instant. I realized that these were wedding presents on the floor. Randy and his girlfriend had just gotten married when I knocked on Randy's door on that Sunday morning. Randy didn't see just a high school kid who had disrupted the beginning of his marriage. He saw a kid who was about to jump the tracks. Instead of spending the early days of his marriage with his bride, he spent it with me sneaking into the back of a tent. Why? It's because Randy loved me. He saw the need and he did something about it. He didn't just say he was for me or with me. He was actually present with me. I learned that faith isn't about knowing all of the right stuff or obeying a list of rules. It's something more, something more costly because it involves being present and making a sacrifice. Love does. Love is an action. Love is an activity. Love is more than belief. Love is the call of followers of Jesus and nothing less and truthfully nothing more. Not that we could probably come up with more. So I was thinking this week, as I remembered that story I had read a while ago, I was thinking about how, what if Randy hadn't opened that door? And he said, I just got married. I don't have time for this teenage kid. 
What if Randy hadn't gone with Bob to Yosemite and Bob had gone on his own? What if, what if Randy had said, you know, I don't have time for this right now. I've got a schedule to keep. I have an agenda. I have priorities. Instead, Randy saw a need. He saw the opportunity to do good and he did good. And you know why that matters so much today? Because that trip changed Bob's life. And even though none of us know who Randy is, Bob Goff has spoke to millions upon millions of people If you didn't know this, he was the first person to ever prosecute a witch doctor in Uganda which steals children from homes, mutilates them and kills them. Bob was the first one to prosecute there. Bob became the consul of Uganda. He led the chief justice of Uganda to know the Lord. Bob has done incredible stuff for the kingdom of God. Bob lives by this motto, love does, do good. He answers his phone every time it rings, period. He might step out in the hallway instead of taking the sanctuary. I don't know. But, but he answers his phone every time it rings. Because this is what love does. Love is an activity. Love is a way of life. Love is an action. And how often do we see life and we see opportunities? We go, oh, I don't have time for that today. What if we learn to live and build margin into our lives to do good and recognize that doing good isn't just coming here? And if you think doing good is coming here, I'm glad you're here. Please keep coming, but you're wrong. Listen to what we say and then go do good. (laughs) Love is a way of life. It is not a belief. See, I think the words of James here are more applicable to the people of the church than any other group. If we know the good we ought to do and we do not do it, it's sin. Period. See, I don't, like, if, you're not, if you don't believe in Jesus, like you can hear that and go, oh, okay, and that's fine. You don't, I don't even think you have to embrace that if you don't believe in Jesus today. But if you do believe in Jesus right now, and if you want to follow him, then you better write that word in your heart. I mean, you might need to literally write on a three-by-five card and put it in your car or in the bathroom mirror, right on the back of your hand. I don't care where you need to put it. Put it as your ringtone. I mean, I don't care what it needs, but each of us need to begin to embrace this idea. If we know there is something good, no matter how big or small that we are called to do, and we choose to not do it, a sinfulness. Do good. Love well. This is God's invitation to us. Will you stand and pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today for the way in which you love us. You invite us to know you and you invite us to embrace your love as a way of life. May the people who call themselves Christians, may the people who are part of your church, may may we be known for doing good and for our love more than what we're against. May we recognize that if we're not, we're likely to lose another generation. May we let go of all the things that really are not that important in the grand scheme of life. And may we do whatever it takes to reach those who don't know you with love. And as Bob said about his friend Randy, he learned that he was not a project, he was a friend. May we never see people as projects, but may we see them as beloved children of God. And may we always do good. Because that's what love does. And God is love. And his son... Jesus is love, and he invites us to be the same. So, Father, help us this day, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. May we go this day. May we do good. May we love well. May we know that the God of peace goes with us.